going to start first talking about adult and general heart disease briefly, one or two slides, just the general motif of who we take care of. And after that, we'll talk about PFO, atrial septal defect, coarctation, and tetralogy, but certain basic aspects of that and why in pediatrics it may be one world and how that shifts as our patients have grown older to become adults. But I like to talk. Um, poetry. Do uh, folks still, I, I love poetry. When I went to school in New York City, uh, we had to learn poetry. Did you all have to learn poetry growing up? Was that part? Okay. Robert Browning uh, was a fantastic poet. He wrote about uh, the theologian uh, Abraham Ibn Ezra, known as Rabbi Ben Ezra, who was a uh, one thousands year existing rabbi, and he preached and he mentated about the world's issues, and he did it by means of paradoxes. He would discuss his view of the world based upon truisms that he saw in a world of paradox. The, the poem by Robert Browning is quite interesting. You know the poem, you've heard the opening line, but I kind of love it. It says what? Grow old along with me. The best is yet to be. The last of life for which the first was made, youth only shows half to understand all of our life. We need to know both the beginnings and the end. Don't be afraid of the end. Life is lifelong in terms of its continuity. Just as I showed you pictures of Dr. Kamides from early in his youth to afterwards, this is me, right? Beginning uh, in my more youthful visage uh, to my current gray hairs. And I, I will tell you, there's nothing about my life that is one moment in time. The way that I think and the way that you all think has to do with where you began this is Dr. Kamaiti's beginnings impacted the reason for saving kids' lives and reaching out to community later in his life. My beginnings have reached to my ends, and I go back and reflect upon the more youthful physicians that I train. Congenital heart disease is no different. It's not a pediatric profession or an adult profession. What we learn in pediatrics reflects and weighs heavily in terms of our adult years and vice versa. If you look at the numbers, there are certain key numbers about congenital heart disease in adult years. Kids born in this country almost every 10 seconds, and a kid with congenital heart disease about once every half an hour. To know congenital heart disease, easy numbers, 1.5 million. There are about a, a million and a half adult survivors with congenital heart disease in this country. If you look at our extended families, and look at the numbers in adults. So about one in 150 adults has congenital heart disease and one in 10 of our extended families has an adult in it with congenital heart disease. That's, those numbers are huge. This makes congenital heart disease the number one birth effect facing this country, huge numbers. I tell people the 50s are the way to remember congenital heart disease. About 50% of our patients are diagnosed in youth and 50% in their adult years. 50% have simple type anatomic lesions. 50% have either moderate or complex lesions. And the last 50 is important because just as I'm in my mid-50s, the typical adult with congenital heart disease today, 2016, almost 2017, is in their mid-50s. Not kid in their mid-50s. Let's talk about four patients. 
You may know some of them. One is a New Englander. We'll start with PFO, the most basic adult and pediatric lesion, if you will, variety, if you will, of anything that we're born with. Football star with a foramen. This 30-year-old may have played for the Patriots, was well, had a BMI of 31, pure muscle mass, was en route from the Pro Bowl on an airplane when he suddenly had transient slurred speech and hemiparesis. He was not using stimulants, not taking steroids. His echo showed a foramen and lots of bubble passage when he was given a bubble contrast echo. The coach calls you because you happen to know the coach from synagogue in Newton, Massachusetts, and he says, this young fellow of mine has an atrial septal defect. Uh, I want you to close it. So what do you do? You listen to one of the wealthier inhabitants of New England, Bob Kraft, and close the patient's foramen. You do a transesophageal echo to look to see if there are certain risk factors related to this foramen potentially. You go to surgery and close this foramen. You do a tox screen because athletes are known to take toxins that can cause vasoconstriction. You do imaging, you do telemetry, you call your neurologist. What do you do? And in terms of test taking, there's no doubt when something is different than the others, your eye catches that. You see one answer which is a little bit longer than others and the answer is, well, there's not a simple answer here. Uh, the foramen may not be the end all of what we should attack when we see common disease. PFOs. PFO is this beautiful space between two chambers in the heart. We are all born with this. It's a critical and necessary part of in utero development. <clears throat> Maternal blood flows not to the lungs but to the body, oxygenated blood, so that fetus can survive. It's this incredible magnet between adult and pediatric cardiologists that you see there at both top of screen and top left and top right. For the adult cardiologist, uh, PFO is common, 25% of the world, it's understandable, it's a simple knowledge about why blood shunts, easy treatments relatively so exist either surgically or transcatheter-wise, and for the pediatric congenital heart disease or adult congenital heart disease doc, the frame is kind of nice because if one did randomized controlled trials, it might bring some greater credibility to our field. There is this cachet that uh, our trials would give us sort of credit uh, amongst adult cardiologists. And there's this sort of ka-ching factor of if in fact closing foramen meant something in the world, uh, a lot of dollars and cents would come back to our hospitals. Hospitals would be proud of us. The data with regard to PFO and stroke stemmed out of the early 1990s. Nancy Bridges, one of the cardiologists at Boston Children's, put together a series. This was back in the days when we could publish, we can do this kind of series. And if you look at screen left, it was the occurrence of stroke in a certain cadre of patients that we had seen prior to them coming in to get their PFO closed. And you see this survival curve or event curve that showed that patients were having recurrent strokes before they had their foramen closed. And on screen right, you see that the recurrence of strokes after we closed foramen went away. Circulation loved this. Suddenly, we published a manuscript saying we can do this in a highly select group of patients with foramen who are having multiple recurrent strokes. We were able to reduce in that population what we called as cardiologists recurrent strokes. It was the first idea that maybe foramen were associated 
Paul Carey, who was a wonderful electrophysiologist and epidemiologist, joined our group. We, we were trying to establish an idea of what kind of statistics we would need, how to empower a randomized controlled trial. So we looked at clinical series, patients in closed foramen in multiple different centers around the country, no randomized study. We were contemplating doing a randomized controlled trial, and we said, from a systemic systematic review, what would be the best case scenario if we close frame and how much stroke could we reduce? And as you see here in terms of the studies, we had an absolute potential to reduce stroke by almost 4%. And that was a statement that two out of three embolic stroke might be treatable by closing frame. And it was a wonderful statistic. It allowed us to set up randomized controlled trials. The world took it slightly differently. The world thought to itself, suddenly we have a therapy which could markedly impact recurrent stroke risk. This was not the same, but this is statistical empowerment. In the absence of data, people began to think, are there certain anatomic features to this flap that we call the foramen that might make patients higher risk for recurrent stroke? We talked about length of tunnels between a thin septum primum and a thicker septum secundum. We talked about this remnant of a flap valve from the inferior vena cava to the right atrium called the eustachian valve, perhaps that lead clot from the venous tree into the left atrium. We talked about hypermobile portions. Uh, the septum primum is a thin piece of material, but it can be almost like a fitted sheet in terms of its wrinkledness. And people have conjectured that that atrial septal so-called aneurysm or that hypermobile component might add risk or that uh, procoagulant tendency in a patient might add risk. These features, you know, medicine loves to give acronyms. And so people in the absence of data said, maybe if you had these carpe, like carpe diem, carpe prognosticators, it might be worthwhile. C for coagulation, A, atrial lots of right to left shunting, procoagulation, a large eustachian valve. People could remember these things, no data behind them, but we had a nice coined term. Data began to arise. Northern Manhattan, I grew up in Queens, New York, went to school in Northern Manhattan. Northern Manhattan is an area, for those of you that know, at significant risk because of lots of existing atherosclerotic risk factors, procoagulation risk factors, an underserved community in Spanish Harlem. And colleagues there looked at cryptogenic stroke and recurrence of cryptogenic stroke and the, whether or not the presence of foramen in a large registry, the Northern Manhattan Stroke Study, whether or not foramen was an added risk factor. And the answer was no, that foramen may have been associated in certain registries, but it didn't seem to be an added risk factor. Well, in 2012 and 2013, three randomized controlled trials were published. One having to do with a double umbrella device, which led to the termination and the removal from existence of those initial clamshell double umbrellas because the trial was a negative trial and the double umbrellas evaporated from the scene of medicine. And then Amplaster type devices in two additional trials. The trials were very similar to each other. The purpose of this slide is just to show you the similarities in the trial. There were 1,000 to 2,000 patients in aggregate in these trials, and the FDA 
asked that they be similar so that we could put and pool the results together. The results of the trial are best shown here in the first and the largest of the trials called the closure trial. What you'll see up here, and I'm not going to point, is that the two lines are incredibly similar. Two arms of a trial. One was patients with cryptogenic no good cause stroke treated with device closure of PFO, the other with best medical therapy, antiplatelet anticoagulant therapy, what a neurologist might treat their patients with. And the answer was no difference in recurrent strokes. And the beauty was even if there were these so-called carpe risk factors, atrial septal hypermobility, procoagulation, lots of bubbles, didn't make a difference. Didn't make a difference in terms of recurrent strokes. The company reported the results before they were published and the company suddenly folded. It was quite interesting. When we pooled the results from the multiple trials, didn't make a difference. Didn't matter what device was being used. In the best of all worlds, if there was a potential that we could be helping patients, it would have taken somewhere between 70 to 100 patients having a procedure to prevent a single stroke. And what was interesting, because we were putting a device inside the heart, the number needed to harm was half of that. That we could help in about one in 100, we could harm in one in 30 to 40 by getting atrial fibrillation. Cryptogenic stroke. Cryptogenic stroke was this term that we used because we didn't have an idea of why people had stroke. It turns out that if you look at the studies, cryptogenic isn't cryptogenic. It just means that we're cardiologists and not neurologists, uh, and we weren't thinking about the entire patient, and that if we were even a pediatric <coughs> cardiologist thought and asked to close, or a congenital cardiologist asked to close the frame, and if we didn't open our minds and take away the blinders and think about other risks for stroke, we weren't seeing that the vast majority of patients had risk. They had diabetes, hypertension, cigarette smoking, and the like, and there are remediable factors in almost all of these patients who had recurrent events. Atrial fibrillation being the most common, and however we look for it, whether it's with ambulatory monitoring, whether it's implantable monitors, whether it is looking just at APBs in patients on telemetry, the answer is that the majority of these patients will have atrial fibrillation found. The FDA changed their minds about this. So initially, it was not allowed to close PFO for the indication of stroke prevention. The most recent review of this was an extension of one of the AMPLATSA trials, the RESPECT trial, taken out to six years. In patients with truly cryptogenic stroke, no other identifiable risk factors, you'll see over here, over six years, there is a signal that suggests that we may be able to impact the recurrence of cryptogenic stroke. Here's the key though. The sum total of strokes, regardless of the cause, cryptogenic, non-cryptogenic, didn't matter. You have the same number of strokes across the entire population. We can reduce cryptogenic stroke, but we're not reducing other strokes by closing foramen. The FDA said, nonetheless, it is reasonable in a very select group of patients that neurologists and cardiologists work on together to theoretically close PFO. The takeaway about PFO and stroke, today no randomized controlled trial has suggested that it benefits patients overall to close PFO. Cryptogenic is a word for all of us as pediatric or adult providers to say, look, someone has a stroke, neurologists can impact stroke. It's not necessarily PFO. At the end of the day, data trump this idea that we must close a foramen, we must do something to help our patients trump 
in terms of win over, not in terms of our president-elect. <laughs> Let's shift to patient number two. Is this a reasonable way for us to go through this idea of basic, simple lesions, PFO? We're going to talk about ASD, cohort, people following me. Is this okay? Nods? Okay. Atrial septal defect. Atrial septal defect being uh, the most common pink disease uh, in adult patients. We're shifting from a 30-year-old to notice what's the age here, an 81-year-old who presents short of breath. Not uncommon in my world, Shay, in your world of adult medicine. Uh, most hospitals around the country to build their referral populations now have dyspnea clinics, shortness of breath, the number one presentation, symptomatology for adults around the globe, shortness of breath. 81-year-old presents with shortness of breath. She has hypertension, atrial fibrillation, typical American. Now she's New York Heart Association, World Health Organization Association, functional class three. She's moderately dyspneic on mild amounts of activity. As a child, she was told she had a hole in her heart, quote, no need to fix or to follow this hole. Dr. Kamadi, it's not an uncommon thing. Someone recognized with an ASD was doing well, made the clinical diagnosis that they weren't in heart failure, patient's gonna do fine for the rest of her life, you're gonna have a good and meaningful life. She says, look, I'm the woman who goes out and mows the neighbor's lawns. Uh, this last little snowfall that we had, I was out shoveling my neighbor, my 70-year-old who's got a wheelchair. I was out there, I was doing fine until recently. The problem is, because of her dyspnea, she got an echo which showed right ventricular volume overload. The right ventricle was much larger than it should have been. Its function is measured by certain excursion of the tricuspid annulus, the so-called TAPSI, its planar excursion, was decreased, suggesting decreased right ventricular function. And lo and behold, there are certain indications that she has pulmonary <coughs> hypertension, but has left to right flow across her atrial septal defect. Okay, a lot of data. Let's examine atrial septal defect in the elder patient. It's about a disease that affects more than a quarter to 40% of our adults with congenital heart disease, about 10% of all congenital heart disease, pediatric and adults. The question is, what should you do for this senior? Do you close her ASD, catheter-based? Do you close it by means of surgery? Do you just, because she's presenting with some extra volume and dyspnea, do you just diurese her? Do you do a whole bunch of things to understand her better? And again, I gave you the clue last time, which is you take the answer which has the most in it, and we'll, <laughs> we'll try to explore why. ASDs, there are numerous types of ASDs, the most common of which is the centrally located secundum type atrial level defect, common to all of us in congenital heart disease care. The terms that we use to understand shunt is that Blood is a simple fluid. Those of us that, any physics majors from undergraduate? Okay, good. I get a twitch when I talk about physics. It's, you'll see it in terms of, of me speaking. But blood is a simple fluid. It takes a pathway of least resistance. That's how I remember basic rules in congenital cardiology. Uh, the right side of the heart usually pumps to a low pressure. It does not build up a lot of muscle. And I use the analogy about filling up a, a thin regular balloon or a helium balloon, the thicker, the balloon, the properties of all materials are such that it's easier to fill something that's thin. We stretch the balloon to make it fill. So the right side of the heart takes less pressure 
to fill it. It's less resistance to fill it. So that blood, if it has a choice to go across a hole, either the right side of the heart or the left side of the heart, these pressure curves suggest that blood's going to flow from the left side to the right, not the right side, not a low resistance to high resistance circuit. And so what happens is that you have over-circulation of this red blood back to the lungs. It's a short circuit of blood not needing to go back to the lungs, but in fact over-circulating the lungs, adding volume to the right atrium, volume to the right ventricle, and volume to the lungs. And that's the primary indication for doing something. We'll come back and examine what that indication is, but if you have right ventricular volume overload, or just truth be told, flipping a coin and coming up with a criteria of a certain amount of excessive blood flow through the lungs, a relative pulmonary to systemic blood flow. At one point, Dr. Kamaitis, it was two and a half, was the number that we all took with us when I was first in training. Then because our therapies became a little less toxic to patients, we lowered the goal of one and a half, and that turns out probably to be a reasonable number. Patients with untreated atrial septal defects, excessive blood flow to the right side of the heart, excessive blood flow through the lungs, develop right ventricular dysfunction, developed pulmonary hypertension. And interestingly, because it was excessive blood flow coming back to the pulmonary veins, developed atrial fibrillation. Those of us in congenital cardiology, when we know about the right atrium being stretched, we think atrial flutter. But when we know about excessive blood flow coming back to the left atrium, stretching of the pulmonary veins causes atrial fibrillation. This is a disease of atrial fibrillation and a morbidity of atrial fibrillation if left untreated. Closing ASDs, we learned anecdotally, did a lot of positive benefit for symptomatic patients. It made the right heart smaller. It took patients who had not yet had atrial fibrillation and probably kept them free of atrial fibrillation. And this MVO2, this maximal cardiac output correlate, it made patients function better. Their lungs were less wet they were less congested, and they were able to perform better on exercise tests. A randomized controlled trial was done in Mexico City at altitude to look at patients who underwent ASD closure surgically and compare them to patients that were treated medically. You can imagine if you have a hole in your heart and the driver is left-sided resistance versus right-sided resistance. If I have diabetes, hypertension, obesity, things that stiffen the left side of my heart, if I'm a good internist, a good pediatrician, and if I lessen those things, I might reduce the impetus for shunting. And so a great many places in this world, the United Kingdom, down in Mexico at the time, people were treating ASDs medically by treating the rest of life. And when they compared the rest of life versus surgical closure, for ASD patients, a multiple combined endpoint was reached so that surgical therapy appeared better. But what were we preventing? We weren't preventing sudden death. We weren't preventing heart failure. We were preventing congestive symptomatology. People had fewer hospitalizations for pneumonia or bronchitis. Closure of ASDs prevents pulmonary symptomatology and may prevent atrial fibrillation. We close ASDs now for the vast majority in the cath lab, in your cath labs. 95% of centrally located ASDs can be closed by means of catheter-based devices. Not so simple. Uh, the majority of patients that present for catheter-based devices don't have sufficient rims around them, 
And the FDA put out a very clear warning that about one in a thousand to one in 10,000 patients can have early, middle, and late-term rupture of the heart based upon our devices. Now, one in a thousand to one in 10,000 is an incre incredibly low <clears throat> potential risk, but it still is a risk. And so we tell every patient that goes for an ASV closure in the cath lab, there are sentinel findings. You in the audience can make a difference in the survival of your patients if they're going for an ASD closure and you tell them, look, if rupture were to happen, almost invariably blood penetrates to the pericardium. People get this Bezel-Jarish reflex, which is that there's sudden acute loss of consciousness. People will pass out and they have this hour or so before catastrophe happens. And I tell people, look, you're at your kid's wedding, you're at the Sentinel Life event, you're in church, you're somewhere and you pass out, you're in a hot, warm place. Don't. Don't describe it to something else. If you had an ASD closure, you get to the hospital, you get an echo, you make sure you don't have blood in the pericardium, you can save a life, and in fact, lives have been saved in that fashion. We're talking about one in a thousand to one in 10 in thousand. The FDA would say you don't need to tell patients about that lower risk. I tell every patient about that because it's a remediable risk. Back to the patient. It's nice to talk about data. This patient, this 81-year-old who was doing marvelously until this past year, and you look at her hemodynamics because we did an echo. Look at hemodynamics. What do we see? Filling pressures inside the heart. The right atrial pressure is supposed to be less than 8 to 10. It's 25 with these V waves to the 40s. We're at heroically abnormal filling pressure. Same on the left side of the heart. The pulmonary hypertension, we all learned in medical school, the number one reason for right-sided heart issues are left-sided heart issues. This woman has remarkable elevation of filling pressures, and pulmonary hypertension is not the deadly idiopathic <laughs> pulmonary hypertension that we're all used to. It's due to left heart disease. And in fact, she got way better. We diureased her, her shortness of breath, went away, she now is back to shoveling. <laughs> she is now back to doing all the things that she wants to do, and the question pops up to us, is she gonna be better off? She's no longer symptomatic. Is she gonna be better off if we close her ASD? It's, it's a tough, tough issue, and I said to you before, the therapy of ASDs can be both medical and surgical. She has survived to 81 years of age. If she was symptomatic, we can make her symptoms better by closing her ASD, but I can't tell her that I'm gonna prolong her life. And so that in a kid, the presence of right ventricular volume overload gets me to treat a patient with an ASD. In an adult, the presence of symptoms makes me treat them, symptoms that I can't otherwise control, but not necessarily just a particular volume load. And instead of four patients, we'll talk about three, and we'll call it quits after patient number three. This is a 32-year-old female marathoner from this area. She had newly recognized systemic hypertension. Notice I didn't say she has new hypertension. She had newly recognized systemic hypertension. Hint, radial femoral delay. She was put onto a beta blocker, but she still had blood pressure in the right arm of 150 over 90, and astutely, my bride, my wife, noticed that she had a blood pressure of 110 over 80 in the lower extremities. I tell everybody, my wife, an endocrinologist, sees patients with difficult-to-treat hypertension, not infrequently. She sends to me two patients with coarctation every year, not because she does MRI scans, but because she does this. She 
puts a finger on the radial pulse and a finger on the femoral pulse for every person at least once who has hypertension. I do that in my practice in adult medicine. If there's radial to femoral delay, if the blood comes out of the heart, goes up and over via the subclavian to the radial pulse, it's the same distance down to the femoral vessels. All of us in congenital heart disease recognize at that time should have an identical wave flow and the pulse should be equal at the same timing. If there's a delay, there's some obstruction in the aorta. It could be atherosclerosis. My wife says to me, I know I may be sending you an atheropath, a patient with atherosclerosis, but then again, it's not her job as an endocrinologist to sort that out. She sends me the patient, and the patients tend to have coarctation. Well, this patient had that, had a posterior murmur, but also had a click to the opening of the aortic valve, all right, as the aortic valve opened. No fourth heart stone, we'll come back perhaps to that. Her MRI had minimal but present left ventricular hypertrophy and had what you see here, which is a narrowing in the descending aorta where the arrow is. And she had evidence on her catheterization of increased development of muscle inside her heart. The question is, what do we do for her? Do we treat the mechanical lesion? Do we treat her just with medical therapy and give her lifelong surveillance of atherosclerotic risks? Do we episodically do MRIs and CT scans if we treat the mechanical risks or all of the above? And the answer is all of the above. And I want to talk to you about coarctation, not just being a mechanical lesion. And then we'll talk about some basics about bicuspid aortic valve and then perhaps call it a day. Coarctation is 5% of all congenital heart disease and it has certain associations. It's present more in men than in women as a lot of left-sided heart lesions are. Bicuspid aortic valve, as I mentioned to you, we'll talk about those numbers shortly. It's more common, so are certain other syndromes like Turner syndrome, where the disease is more important in some ways or more threatening. And the symptoms are that of obstruction to the left-sided outflow. As you try to get blood across a narrowed segment, you're going to build up pressure. The aorta is going to feel it. You're going to feel it in the carotid vessels and the coronary vessels and a buildup of muscle inside the left side of the heart, premature heart failure, premature atherosclerosis, aneurysms of the ascending aorta, aneurysms of the head and neck vessels, and a deprivation of blood flow to the lower extremities, claudication, and issues with perfusion of the vital organs. We know coarctation in our practices because we know that the older the patient is, when you treat them, the more likely they're going to have residual hypertension. So much so that in our adult practices, we say that someone treated in their adult years for coarctation is going to have systemic hypertension. If you can't find it, you just haven't looked hard enough for it, they're going to display it for you at some point in their lives. This is an issue of aortopathy by the time you're an adult. If I repair completely the mechanical lesion, take away the narrowed segment, doesn't matter, my aorta remains highly non-distensible, my stiffness of my aorta, my aorta has changed by the time I'm an adult. At the bottom of the screen, no matter what, our patients develop hypertrophy by one means of study or another. There is no perfect coarctation repair. I may make it easier to treat hypertension by repairing coarctation in adult years, but I still have an aortic disease of inflammation and pro-atherosclerosis. If I look for elevation of blood pressure, if I look for hypertrophy, I'm going to find it in my patients. When we do large epidemiologic studies of perfect repairs of coarctation 
in our adult patients, and we look to see how those patients die compared to other patients with congenital heart disease. They die of hypertension at a greater potential. They die of atherosclerosis risk factors, stroke, peripheral vascular disease with much greater morbidity and mortality. I mentioned to you that this patient had a click to their exam. There is a co-association with coarctation of bicuspid aortic valve. The vast majority of patients with coarctation have a bicuspid valve. And interestingly, the other way around, if you have a bicuspid valve, about 5% of those patients will have coarctation. Bicuspid aortic valve isn't just a single disease. It's like saying somebody that has fever has a single disease. Bicuspid aortic valve is fusion of one of the commissures of the aortic valve. You have right non-fusion, right left fusion, left non-fusion. They're all different diseases, and they present with different phenotypes. Patients will have different types of aortopathy, expansion of the aorta around the valve, and the rate of progression of those aneurysms may differ based upon what type of fusion a patient presents with. This simple valvular heart disease ain't simple. The adult cardiologist who says a bicuspid aortic valve is just presentation of any aortic stenosis, but 10 to 20 years younger is not correct. The aortopathy is different. Screening, because this is an inheritable disease in 20 to 30% of our patients. Screening patients, it's a real big question. Do you screen every family member of somebody with bicuspid aortic valve disease so as to capture those patients in their youth who might have valvular heart disease? I'm sure Leon and all of us would say the answer is no. You're going to be picking up a huge number of patients that don't have active disease until their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Why should I tell somebody that? If, in fact, there's a family history of aortic enlargement, that's a different issue. But, in fact, most of us don't screen patients unless there's an aortopic picture in the family. I'm going to scoot through. You're going to see me clicking for a minute or two. We've talked about patients with PFO. We've talked about patients with ASDs. We've talked about coarctation. And we're not going to talk about tetralogy. I want to leave with a couple of slides. We can talk about tetralogy pulmonary valve replacement uh, if we have time afterwards, if there are burning questions. But I wanted to show you the most basic of the lesions that we face and to show you that we're still perplexed. Randomized data don't necessarily occur. And instinct doesn't necessarily answer the question for the most simple of congenital heart disease played out into adult years. These are data from several years ago that looked in Canada at the success of adult congenital heart disease centers. And what you'll see here is that guidelines for adult congenital heart disease center referral occurred at this point in time. And we look at referrals to those adult congenital heart disease centers. And this is mortality for adults with congenital heart disease. At the time point when referrals to ACHD centers, such as the one you have here in Hartford, began to occur, mortality began to decline. And if you look at that specifically here, if you look at the far left, patients in terms of survival that were not being taken care of in referral centers had a greater mortality than those patients who were going to those referral centers. It's interesting. It's not necessarily tagged to, I am being followed for cardiovascular issues by a particular doctor. That ACHD doc is saving my life. It's the center. 
It's the center of care. Our patients don't necessarily face congenital heart issues. Shay, during your fellowship, you would be most likely to say, you saw a lot more medicine. You saw a lot more cancer playing out in our patients, ischemic bowel, liver disease, renal disease, at a much higher frequency because of the inflammatory nature of heart failure playing out in our patients. The diseases play out differently. The continuity across a lifetime, what presents with a child with an ASD or with coartation is different than the adult who presents. The indications for repair, the indications for therapy are way different. But the knowledge to get that person through their cancer surgery or their acute renal failure requires the knowledge of the physiology and the anatomy of the congenital heart lesion. There are now more than 150 self-proclaimed centers with some sort of standardization going on in terms of quality from these centers. You have your center here in Hartford with Shea Felice, led by Leon in terms of the original practice that you had. And the statement is the following. There aren't enough of us taking care of adults with congenital heart disease. I usually, in a room of internists, make people raise their hand and say, how many people care for someone with congenital heart disease? And I'll say to you, in, in the pediatric and internal medicine world, I don't think there's a single one of you that doesn't take care of somebody with congenital heart disease. Many of those patients not being seen necessarily by the cardiologist, because you are the medical home for those patients. And it is our obligation to make sure that you know the basic guidelines, the basic rules. And there are guidelines of care in 2008 and coming out this coming year with regard to care. There are large patient advocacy organizations that prompted parts of the Affordable Care Act. Obamacare, the fact that no adult or child based upon a pre-existing condition could be denied health care. That added fact came from the Adult Congenital Heart Association, the advocacy group for adults with congenital heart disease. There are NIH-based initiatives to span the entire lifelong process of caring for adults with congenital heart disease. There's both center accreditation and board certification for adults with congenital heart disease. I mentioned Patch, and I love the movie Patch Adams because it displays a certain humanity to what we all do. Patch was and is a program developed by the American College of Cardiology along with the patient advocacy group to extend out the knowledge about caring for kids and adults with congenital heart disease to the community of our practitioners, namely to yourselves. And so that this kind of talk is aligned with that. For those of you that may be interested and may be a little bit concerned about taking care of adults with congenital heart disease, there are ongoing courses throughout the region, one coming up next year with regard to caring for adults with congenital heart disease. I want to thank you all for allowing me to spend some time with you speaking about the lifelong process of caring for adults with congenital heart disease. I have come to know most of the cardiovascular practitioners here in Hartford. Uh, I am envious and jealous of the practice that you all have here. Uh, it is a humanitarian model uh, based upon what I really believe is a foundation uh, of data-driven medicine. Uh, you all are our neighbors uh, next to Boston. There's nothing magical about big cities. Uh, you guys have a real thriving system that is community-based. Uh, I wish we had aspects of that uh, with the life that you have here in Hartford back in Boston. Uh, and I appreciate the ability to speak with you. Dr. Kamaitis, thank you for uh, having me part of